The Christ had to suffer is our message this evening. We looked last uh, Sunday at uh, verse 27, how the Old Testament points to the Lord and how Jesus is, is ubiquitous in the Old Testament. He is before the Old Testament. He is beneath as the basis of the Old Testament. He's the focus of the Old Testament. We talked about the fact that there's a sense in which we don't read the Bible in this way and say, isn't it, as it were, lucky that Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament? It's rather the Old Testament itself was a shadow and type of the reality that was already to come. That's how we are to read our Bibles. Now, we want to come then to the content of his teaching. We wish, as we said last week, that there was more, uh, more brought out here, but we have at least a clue in verse 26 when he says to this, uh, these, this dim-witted and dull-hearted duo, he says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? There is a, a stanza in a Christian song that I wrote down here has always bugged me a little. Maybe bugged me is a little bit too strong. It's irked me. It's, I'm not sure it's altogether proper. You've heard these lines. Through the years, you've made it clear that the time of Christ was near, though the people couldn't see what Messiah ought to be. Though your word contained the plan, they just could not understand. Your most awesome work was done through the frailty of your son. What hymn is that? It's El Shaddai, right? Very famous song, very pretty song, a fairly sound song. It talks about the greatness of God shown in the weakness of Christ. But the one line that stands out is how the people couldn't see what the Messiah ought to be. Although contained in the word, they couldn't understand it. Um, I guess maybe from one angle you can say, yeah, all right, they were, they were blinded by their sins. If that's what it's saying, then fine. And that's how I try to sing it to reconcile my conscience to those words. But on the other hand, I think they're saying that we just really couldn't understand that Jesus was supposed to come in such a humble and suffering and lowly way. And only after after the resurrection, after the glory, then we can understand these things. That seems to be the intention. And if that's the intention, then that intention is wrong. Jesus himself says otherwise. Dim-witted and dull-hearted, if you don't see these things, from the Old Testament. But there is also no question that there was this stone of stumbling in the appearance of the Savior that was prophesied. And along with his humility as being brought into this world in a lowly state, as well as his ministry that would be such a sharp rebuke of all sin, He would stand against even the religious leaders of his day and reprove their pride and their unbelief. Sufferings were a part of that package that caused people to stumble. Sufferings proved hard for people to swallow. Although the fact of these things is right there on the surface in the Old Testament to be believed. You see that in Psalm 22, which we read uh, this evening. We saw that last week in Isaiah 53. It's right there on the surface, along with his resurrection from the dead. A crucified, suffering Savior. Paul says a stumbling block to the Jews and a uh, form of foolishness to the Greek. William Hendrickson, in his comments on this particular passage, 
cites various Jewish interpretations of Isaiah 53, which applied the triumphant portions to the Messiah when it says that he is going to have this great reward, this great spoil that he will share with others. That's speaking about the Messiah. But when it talks about his suffering, his being pierced, his his being smitten and afflicted by God, oh, that speaks about Israel. That speaks about the Jews. Other Jewish exegetes have, have tried to say there's actually two messiahs. There's a suffering Messiah, and there is a victorious Messiah. So we see the divided minds that were there in that day. Now, understand something. If you have a choice between A or B, which one are you going to pick? I want the triumphant Savior. I want the triumphant King. Um, Give us the winner. Don't give us the one who's lowly and suffering. And yet, the text here says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer. It was a necessity. The Greek word here has that kind of a force about it. It was necessary that he uh, suffer for, for us. Why was it necessary? That's really the burden of our message tonight. We want to answer this question. Why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer why couldn't he come into this world and, and not ever stub his toe, not ever have any pain, never, never any affliction, no trial? He's the son of God. He is perfect after all. Why was it necessary? Why does he teach these things to these disciples? Well, let's answer that question. I want to do that a little bit more fully than what Jesus was likely to teach these learners, these two disciples. No doubt he pointed to the prophecies. He pointed to Psalm 22 and other passages in the Old Testament that outlined the Messiah must have these sufferings, these afflictions, these trials, these piercings, even to taste death for us. But I want to widen the the, the lens a little bit tonight um, and look at maybe a fuller picture of why it was necessary for Jesus to suffer And I have seven points. So, number them, one through seven. Number one, let us say, first of all, that it was necessary that Jesus suffer from before the foundation of the world. This necessity was not something that arose halfway through history, and God the Father says, I have this idea, let's send the Son. No, this is something that was purposed and planned from before the dawn of time, before God first spoke, let there be light. It was not necessary until the Trinity covenanted to send forth the Son. Think of it that way. There was a plan. There was a purpose. That purpose included the the creation of the world, the creation of man, the allowance of uh, permission of the fall, and then to glorify God, the triune God, by sending forth a Redeemer. This was planned from before the foundation of the world. And please understand this. This wasn't as though you know, Jesus was forced into this, that he had to go, as somehow the three persons of the Trinity drew straws and he got the short, the short end of the stick. No. I, you, you, you've read Pilgrim's Progress. You need to read The Holy War by John Bunyan. There is a magnificent passage in there where um, uh, the father is coming to, to figure out how do I take the city of man that has been taken over by Diablos How do I bring it back? And he comes with this plan. I'm going to send a conqueror from heaven. 
And Jesus, the son, is right there, and he is totally in agreement with the plan. He goes, this is a great plan. I'm on board. And the father reminds him of all that it's going to cost him. It is going to cost you everything, he says to the son. And the son says, I'm willing to go. It's magnificent. That necessity, from that point on, when this purpose is arrived at, although this purpose, let's say clearly, has always been in place, never had a beginning. God's plans and purposes are above time. They don't have a start. They have an end and a focus, but they don't have a beginning. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit drew up this plan. And so in this sense, our first point is that the the sufferings of the Son of God were necessary in the purpose of God. God didn't have to do it this way. He chose to do it this way. Once he chose to do it this way, then it becomes a necessity. God, once he purposes, must fulfill his plan, his will. And it will come to pass exactly as he plans. And that's why we need to always be glad about whatever the Lord plans and purposes. We have to say his purposes are high and they are good. And that even includes sin. It includes the fall. It includes all of the, all of the evil that we see around us and even in the world that is to come. So that's the first point. Number two, his sufferings were necessary due to the fall. Satan's head had to be crushed. The serpent had to be put beneath the heel of the seed of the woman. And in doing so, the heel that crushes that serpent must itself be bruised, or it uses the same word in the Hebrew, crushed. The battle itself between Satan, who tempted Adam and Eve, implies hardship to be endured. Even death was necessary in order to rob death of its prize. Whoever would come from heaven to rescue the lost sons of Adam had to become low like him and do battle with Apollyon, the destroyer. He must be almighty and righteous, but he also must identify with his lowly people. He must be man. He must be part of our race and yet apart from sin. So Jesus becomes bone of our bones. He takes our sins upon himself with sin's miseries with sin's sufferings. And so he robs Goliath, as David did, takes his sword and cuts off his head with it. But in doing so, it cost him dearly. Jesus had to suffer because of the fall and because of his um, calling to overthrow the wicked one. The battle would be a bloody one. The battle would be in all earnest. And in his humanity, he had to suffer in in order to overcome the evil one. That's number two. Number three, giving his people a pattern for suffering. I don't know if you realize this, but being a Christian is no bed of roses. Being a Christian means you're going to suffer. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to have hardships. And Jesus has given his people a pattern for suffering. He lends to us in our sufferings meaning and purpose uh, for the trials that we are called upon to endure. You are called on by Jesus to take up your cross daily. He who stooped to the lowest, who stooped so very low, has given you an example to follow in his footsteps. He has gone deeper than any has suffered. Whatever your suffering, whatever your hardship, whatever trial God calls upon you to endure, to stand up under, you can know this, that Jesus has suffered far more deeply than you have. 
And wherever you are standing, whatever suffering is yours, whatever affliction is yours, you can be sure that Christ has walked that path before you. That brings meaning. That brings comfort to the saint in all of the ups and downs and the the, the craziness even in the Christian life. Jesus drank the cup to the bottom that we know that he has gone before us. One Puritan put it this way, God has but one son without sin, but none without suffering. If you're a child of God, you will suffer. It's part of the chastening of being the part of the family of God. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Oh, we're good with that so far. Yeah, I want to be lifted up. I want to be alive. But he goes on, and the fellowship of his sufferings in the same breath. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, that when I'm facing trials, I know the presence of the Lord with me to uphold me and to, um, to strengthen me because his example is before me, being conformed to his death. The book of Hebrews puts it so, so wonderfully. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, There's the fall. There's Genesis 3. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give assistance or aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And here's the passage. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered... Being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Christ is your example. He is also your helper. Whatever um, part of the cross he is calling upon you to carry, he is the one who assists you and encourages you. And then number four, he had to be perfected through suffering. Jesus, it says in the Bible, learned obedience. That was the path that he was called upon to walk, Philippians chapter 2. Um, says, again, the writer of Hebrews, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, there's his greatness, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect, complete, through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So you see here, his obedience, his includes suffering. And that suffering is to the effect that he would gather us together through his perfection as the captain of our salvation and so be united to us and empower us to be able to endure Hebrews 5, a little bit later, says something similar. He also says in another place, You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, no doubt referring to Gethsemane, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And thus, we see here the path that Jesus lays before us. 
Point number four, he had to be perfected through suffering. A Savior who doesn't come and so identify with us, as well as give us an example of suffering, cannot be the Messiah. No doubt he would have brought something of that out to the disciples. As he said, if he, if he said to them, as many of the Jews were hoping, we want a Messiah who's all about conquering, all about triumphing, all about lifting the boot of Rome off of our neck. Jesus would say, such a Messiah cannot be the Messiah. The Messiah must obey, and that includes suffering. That leads to number five. He had not only to suffer obediently, he had to suffer vicariously. He had to suffer as an atonement for our sin. That's really the cornerstone of why Christ came into this world, to take our sins upon himself. Um, The sufferings, the miseries of sin were part of the punishment that your sins and mine deserve. And this punishment, this suffering, no doubt was the deepest wound that he bore. The deepest affliction, the deepest sufferings he had to carry was when he was on that cross and made a burnt offering for us, a guilt offering for us, to be consumed, as it were, for the sins of his people, as God the Father looked upon him as sin and turned his face away from him. From his Father as a just penalty, the just for the unjust, Jesus was made sin, who knew no sin. Can you even begin to imagine what it must have been like for the Son of God made flesh to come into such intimate connection with sin. He never was a sinner. He never committed sin. But for you, know, you and for me, we, we, as the book of Job says, we drink iniquity like water. It's the, it's the atmosphere. Sin is the atmosphere in which we live. Um, but for Jesus, it was not. And for him to be made sin in that setting, this no doubt is the deepest Suffering that he had to endure. The full sword of God's righteousness. The sword of, um, of, of wrath was buried in him to the very hilt, as it were. If it did not go all the way in, if he did not fulfill all righteousness and paying for all of our sins, we would, still, we would be lost. We would still be in our iniquities. The cross was the nadir of his sufferings. And yet at the same time, the cross was the apex of his great love, that he endured such things so that we would not have to answer for our sins, that our sins would be paid for in full. That's number five. That's a centerpiece. Number six, Jesus had to suffer in order to be exalted. Humiliation has to come before exaltation. There's no exaltation without suffering And suffering was a major part of his humbling himself. Philippians chapter 2 could not be any clearer when it says, from the depths of his obedience, even to the point of death, even death upon the cross, and all that involves, not just in the horizontal, but especially in the vertical, wherefore God has highly exalted him, given him a name above every name, both in this age and the age which is to come, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. He teaches this, this teaches the, the principle in the kingdom that there, if there's no cross, there's no crown. If there is no pain, there's no, no palm, no celebration of victory. Where there's no thorn, there's no throne. There is suffering that leads to exaltation. No gall means no glory. 
So that's the sixth. He had to suffer in order to be exalted. And then number seven, without suffering and entering then into his glory, there could be no full and eschatological victory by which all things could and would be made new. If Jesus doesn't suffer, there's no new heavens. There's no new earth. In the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, we find, um, we find this setting of glory and the, tw- the 24 elders and, and the worship that is going on. And then this mysterious scroll of judgments upon, upon the world, upon the wicked, upon the evil in, 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 a, in, the, in this world is presented. But nobody was worthy to open that scroll the scroll that would be opened and all judgment upon all wickedness at the end of the age would come to pass. One who was worthy to rule uh, could not be found at first, but then appears one who is worthy, one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but at the same time says, had been the lamb who had suffered great humiliation. The one who'd been perfected as a lamb now roars as a lion. Let me read verses 5 through 7 of chapter 5. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, not the branch of David, the root, the one behind David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came, he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Beloved, all tears could not be wiped away without such a lamb lion as Jesus is. There is no remedy for these things apart from the sufferings of the lamb who is now the lion. He who had suffered and died and now is risen removes all tears, wipes them away, removes all pain, removes all suffering, removes all darkness, all evil, all sin, all things that are an offense to God are going to be cast out of the kingdom at last. And all the wicked will be cast into outer darkness with it. The false prophet And the beast will be cast into that lake of fire, as we hear in Revelation chapter 19, and later Satan himself in Revelation 20. Dear ones, suffering, that's that's the seventh point. Suffering was necessary for this Savior to be the cosmic Christ, the one who's going to bring in all righteousness, uh, where the meek inherit the earth. And the, the all evil is finally uh, done away with. What a glorious gospel this is based upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Suffering, as we close, is a part of life in a fallen world. If you are going through life, and many of our young people, I think, are in these shoes, they think, why should I ever have to suffer? And if I suffer, then I, 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 I'm just going to kind of tuck and roll into my victimhood and not stand up to these these situations. Understand that suffering is real, but God has ordained it for a purpose. 
He's ordained it even for good in the life of his people. If he can send his own son into this world and face such atrocious sufferings and bring such great good, cosmic good out of it, he can do so for you as well. Your sufferings are not so great that uh, they cannot bring glory to God and blessing to you. For those yet in their sins, such sufferings, you better beware. If you are outside of Christ, these sufferings may be the forerunners, may be the foretaste of hell itself. This world is a mixture of suffering and goodness. But there is a place where there's nothing but suffering, nothing but tears, nothing but pain. Be sure that you have fled from the wrath to come by fleeing to Christ. But as Christians, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Whether you are prospering and walking on the, on the mountaintops of his providence, or you find yourself in some of the darker spots, and there are dark spots in the valleys of his providence, God is still able to make you abound in your trials, in your afflictions, uh, in these dark sufferings. Samuel Rutherford said that when I find myself in afflictions, when I find myself in the basement of God's providence, I look for the finest wine. I think most of us, when we're down there, we're looking for a different kind of wine, a whining, W-H-I-N-E. But God calls us to prosper even in suffering, even as his son did. We all desire to avoid tribulation. We have a whole theology that is rampant in America, built on the idea that we shouldn't have to suffer. We're going to be raptured out of any great tribulation that may be coming and that we will never see the beast or the false prophet at all. Even though Paul says that is the sign of the end in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says the resurrection hasn't come, hasn't come. Jesus hasn't returned because the Antichrist hasn't come. The man of sin. When the man of sin appears, then you know. But... Besides, the church has been told that we will face tribulation. Through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom, says Acts chapter 14. And there will be, all along, many false prophets, many uh, antichrists, as 1 John talks about. The church goes through tribulation. The church faces antichrist. We face false prophets um, before facing what seems to be this big kahuna who comes at the end who is something of, a, of, a, of an ape uh, trying to do what Jesus has done and mock the Trinity. It's just kind of a Trinitarian um, attempt on the part of Satan. Aren't all of these facts that the church goes through tribulation, faces these antichrists, faces false prophets, isn't this presumptive proof against this secret rapture theory? This secret rapture theory is unhealthy. It makes people think, I don't have to go through tribulation. I don't have to go through hardships. Jesus is just going to bungee jump me right out of it, these troubles, and I'll, all will be well. No, God knows how to overcome your afflictions and sufferings, your losses and crosses, by keeping you in them. On this particular date, 828, God knows how to work all things together for your good, necessarily so. For such a loving God has stooped so low. This God who has spared nothing for you. If God is for you, who could be against you? That should be our motto. Regardless of our circumstances, 
God knows what he's doing. He knows how to keep us well. Some Christians, as Thomas Watson put it, some Christians keep better in sugar and some in brine. God knows how to keep you in the brine or in the sugar or the particular solution that you are in. Jesus has plumbed these depths before you. You walk in his footsteps. He loves you and holds your hand and will bring you at last out of them to his glory and to your good. Well, next time, Lord willing, we'll come to the second half of this verse. It was not only necessary that the Christ suffer, but how necessary that he enters into his glory. That'll be the, I'm not going to say it's going to be funner, but it will be good, I trust. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for all things in him, that he is such a complete redeemer. His providence is perfect. Your care for us as shepherd. You are the Lord who, you Lord are the one who has made us. You formed us. You knew us from the womb. You know every word in our, in our tongue. Nothing surprises you in our life, good or bad. You uphold us by your mighty hand. We thank you for your great love to us that that does keep us through high times and low. We thank you, Lord, for your care, your smile upon us. Lord, help us to be reminded that even if everything is taken away from us in this life, this world cannot touch what is most precious to us, the abiding presence of our Savior, who has said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, even to the point where we are brought at last to our everlasting rest, where neither rust nor moth can enter to corrupt or to steal. We thank you, Lord, that we, are, we have a complete Savior and that we are complete in him. Lord, help us to buoy us up and to anchor us simultaneously through a stormy world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.